Welcome to the Canola Watch Podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. The topic for this podcast is genetics, environment, and management. Finding room for improvement. Recordings are from the first installment of the Canola Watch Winter Webinar Series, held live on November 24th. The three pillars that drive canola yield are genetics, environment, and management. The webinar and this podcast will provide a few ideas so growers and agronomists can scratch the surface on how consideration for all three pillars can lead to better decisions. We have three presenters, Paul Bullock, Nate Ort, and Keith Fournier. Paul Bullock will lead off with a discussion on the environment in 2021. Paul is a professor in the Department of Soil Science at the University of Manitoba. His research in agrometeorology includes crop modeling, crop risk assessment, and soil moisture assessment methods. Here's Paul. The majority of Western Canada going into um, the winter of 2020 was dry or very dry. There were some exceptions, but the majority of the area was dry. So that's kind of where we started things. Everything goes into a deep freeze, and then along comes the spring, and we start to, uh, to do our cropping. So basically what we saw to the beginning of 2021 was a cold and dry soil for spring planting, definitely not ideal for germination. And there were issues with flea beetles um, because the flea beetle control not uh, being as effective and some very thin canola fields. Then before heading into an exceptionally hot and dry summer, we had a May frost, which Paul describes here. If you look closely, there's areas like all of Manitoba and and a large area in Saskatchewan experienced either a light to a somewhat heavy frost during that time period. So it ended up, um, you know, there was receding that was taking place because of it. When we get into June, things changed. Uh, First of all, the temperature was no longer below normal, it was above normal. The precipitation side was still variable, but I would say was drier in tone than it was in May. We have areas there that were quite below uh, percent of average. Some areas were a little bit better, um, but in general, I would say that June became a, little, a bit warmer and a little bit drier. And it was enough that if you have a look at what the Canadian drought monitor was saying at the end of June, already was uh, talking about some pretty extreme drought in Manitoba, some areas of of Saskatchewan, and and fairly widespread dry conditions. So that was already apparent by the end of June. So that wasn't um, particularly um, encouraging at that point of the growing season. July really didn't help much. Um, That average temperature that we're showing here continued to be anywhere from two to three, up to three to four degrees above uh, normal uh, for the whole month. Very unfavorable during the period for canola um, flowering. So so this just really was not uh, very good uh, for for the crop at all. The precipitation was even worse. Um, Percent of average precipitation, you can see widespread areas, less than 40% of normal. The The taps really got turned off just about everywhere. So if you go and have a look at the Canadian drought monitor and what was it saying as of the end of July, well, kind of what you would expect. That drought that was showing up in June just became that much worse. 
So the latest information that I could find uh, from Statistics Canada was what was reported in September for uh, provincial canola yield estimates. This, this estimate is based on weather and satellite imagery. And you can see that 2021 um, was, was significantly below uh, the, the previous four years. Uh, in, in, even in some of those years were somewhat dry, but 2021, you can see how exceptional it was. If there's any surprise on this chart, it's the fact that the uh, that yield estimate for canola in Manitoba was as good as it was. That was Paul Bullock. The latest StatCan canola yield estimates posted December 3rd are 29.7 bushels per acre for Manitoba, 22.0 for Saskatchewan, and 27.7 for Alberta. If you want to see the full presentation, including slides, please go to youtube.com slash canola council. Our next guest is Nate Ort. At the time of recording, Nate was an agronomy specialist with the Canola Council of Canada. He is now moving on to the University of Saskatchewan to work on a PhD. Nate's segment will explain phenology, which is the genetics by environment by management relationship. Here's Nate. Okay, so my segment uh, of today's uh, webinar is looking at uh, tracking canola phenology. So what is phenology? Phenology is the study of life cycle events or growth stage timing um, and the external or uh, the external influences, either biotic or abiotic, that might affect this. So, you know, as you can imagine, uh, in the spring, we plant. Uh, and then it comes out of the ground, but what really is driving this rate of growth and development? And from, from seed to emergence, this is like, this is mostly soil temperature, soil moisture, um, but there, you know, there could be some management practices in there as well that also affect this. Uh, and, you know, progressing through uh, the life cycle of canola from emergence to, you know, let's say flowering, uh, the example on the screen, what else drives, you know, what can drive phenology then? So we have air temperature, soil temperature, precipitation, or, you know, the amount of available uh, soil moisture, um, but also things like photo period, the length of day, or, or the amount of solar radiation. And, and these, of course, all interact with each other. Um, and so it's just incredibly complex. Um, but, and, and, you know, to further, even to add on to this, different factors affect the rate of growth and development differently. And it, and it depends on the growth stage that it's in too. Uh, so this kind of goes for most, most crop species, but the optimal temperatures for, for max growth rate and development uh, is usually warmer when the plant is in the vegetative stage and lower when the plant is developing reproductively. You know, so as you can imagine, uh, when I was younger, I preferred warmer temperatures. Uh, and now that I'm a little bit older, uh, and mostly because of my current hairstyle, I prefer cooler temperatures because these cooler temperatures mean that there is either less sun or I'm in the shade uh, and I'm not going to burn my head. Uh, or I can wear a hat, but I don't often think of that. So phenology, back to G by E by M, which drives yield. And, and, but which drives yield the most? You know, Do they impact production the same consistently or is it different? Uh, the genetics that are commercially available now are, are good. You know, there are good hybrids uh, available, um, you know, and management is good too. We're good at our jobs. Farmers are good at their jobs. Agronomists are good at their jobs. We do research all the time to try to improve this. And, and you know, and I think genetics and management, uh, we do a really good job. of. Um, in my opinion, environment drives yield the most. And I think that 2021 growing season is a really good example of this. 
you know, you can have the best genetics, you can, you can do everything right management wise, but you know, if it doesn't rain. So I'm going to be talking a lot about environment too, um, and, and kind of a, an exercise that Canola Council agronomy specialists uh, participated in this year. So I'm going to be talking about tracking phenology and how you might be able to make this work uh, for you and, and how we can maybe find rooms for improvement just by looking at growth stages and, and when these occurred. So in, in 2021, Canola Council Agronomy Specialists recorded growth stages for the same hybrid through the growing season. Uh, so here's, you know, the sheet here. This is, we just went out to the field at least once a week and you'd write down the calendar date of all these stages. The environmental conditions and the management practices, uh, of course, varied. These were approximately where the fields are, right? So I, I've been calling this the CPNI or the agronomy specialist farm, <laughs> but it's just it's that's a big farm, right? Big, it's Western Canada, and most farms don't farm in all three provinces. But so you know, keep that in mind. Um, but but this exercise, it was it was a good uh, way to you know summarize uh, the growing season. So again, yeah, of course, environment was different. Uh, these two charts that I have, uh, the one on top, that's accumulated growing degree days uh, starting on May 1st and ending at the end of September. Uh, you can see, if you're, if you're looking closely, we're not gonna get too far into this, but the purple line and the green line, those are Manitoba, they accumulated the most and, and, and so on and so forth. And below it is precipitation uh, or rain for the, for the same interval. Um, and, and what I didn't show, here is actually all of these locations compared to their climate normal. Uh, so, you know, the normal growing conditions for, for a given location uh, based on a 30 year average. Uh, for heat, all locations were above normal. So it was hotter than normal. For precipitation, all locations were lower than normal. So it was hot and dry. I think we all knew that already. Diving into the results, so from planting to emergence, and, and if you see this, this figure here on, uh, on your right, if you imagine planting at the start of this bar and emergence at the end of the bar, uh, a timeline of sorts, if you will, uh, and the value in the middle, that's the number of days, right? So why, obviously some of these fields emerged a little bit quicker than others. This one here, that was my field, uh, took two weeks. And, and why could this be? And so, you know, when you have, the, when you have these data, you can start looking for trends. And, and again, this is looking at the you know environment drove all of these differences. But imagine if you know you're lucky you you decide I'm going to plant later this year. How did that affect time to emergence? Or I'm going to grow a different variety? Or I'm going to seed lighter or heavier? Or maybe you have an on-farm trial and you have a bunch of different comparisons that you need to make. Uh, tracking phenology can can really provide a lot of useful data. One thing I noticed with our data set was these fields that emerged quicker. Uh, we're all planted after May 15th, a trend. Another trend that I noticed was uh, the average temperature 10 days before seeding, as this increased, the days to emergence decreased. So in this case, planting in, warm, uh, in warmer, uh, later spring, uh, this, this hastened the time from planting to emergence. Uh, of course, planting uh, later isn't always possible. Uh, you know, we have more than one crop to plant. We have a lot of ground to cover in a relatively short window of time. But, you know, increasing that time from planting to emergence, this can have a lot of benefits. Um, and, and this can lead to uniformity in the plant stand, uh, things like uh, insecticide seed treatments, you know, these, these don't last forever. So let's get the plant up and out of the ground as quickly as possible. What about early season growth? So I have days from planting here 
uh, and, and the vegetative development emergence, you know, uh, cotyledon through to bolting. And you can see that this was different uh, among the fields that we observed. It, it would be great if this line was actually more flat because that would mean that canola just raced through those growth stages. And that's important for flea beetles as well too, right? Like if we can all grow it, great. Um, and then when I looked at the average number of days and stage among these fields, you know, there were some that were, that were quicker. This one in Saskatchewan uh, was growing faster and same with Alberta. And again, this, this will be largely due to environment. But, you know, if you can imagine, say these are all different hybrids on your farm, say it's a side-by-side -side trial, why, you know, why are some doing more than others? Is how do we increase early season growth rate? Can we do this through selecting hybrids? Do we plant earlier or later seeding rate, pest management? What about fertilizer placement, a pop-up uh, phosphorus effect with when you, when you put, uh, you know, seed place fertilizer, seed place phosphorus? It's a tongue twister for a plant scientist. What about phenology, uh, sorry, flowering? Uh, so the duration of flowering, we, you know, we always hear more, more time in flower can mean greater yield. And, and that was actually observed in, in the fields that we uh, looked at this summer. So, you know, as, as the duration of flowering increased, uh, so did yield. So how do we get canola to flower for longer? Do we plant earlier? Do we try to shift that, you know, window into maybe cooler temperatures, would that help? Uh, do we plant later? Um, does this have to do with hybrids? What about seeding rates? Um, it's, you know what, you're going to end up, I'm going to have more questions than answers. I'm more of a question guy. I don't, I don't really have a lot of answers. So flowering, heat stress, widespread across the prairies this year. Uh, you know, temperatures above 30 degrees during flowering, uh, this, this can lead to yield loss. And, and so uh, what I looked at in this data set was a percent of flowering days above 30 degrees. So imagine, you know, your canola crop flowered for 20 days. Uh, 10 of those days were above 30 degrees. That means that 50% of the flowering days were pretty hot uh, and that sucks. So, but like, so what does that mean? Um, in, in this data set, what, what I noticed was when this percent of flowering days uh, was greater, days in flower was shorter. So high temperatures during flowering can lead to a shorter flowering duration. And these, of course, the shorter flowering duration and also the heat stress will lead to reduced yield. So which hybrids on your farm flower the longest? I think this is, this is a good uh, and an important uh, part data to collect for hybrid comparison trials. If you have you know, two or three or however many you choose to compare, tracking when flowering starts. Uh, and, and actually these heat stress, most experiments, they, they, uh, they consider flowering from bolting. So you know, even actually before there's, there's visible flowers, but bolting to the end of flower. Um, and, and which are the first ones to flower and, and why is this? Moving forward to pod and seed development, something that, uh, that I noticed in, in, our, in these fields was when days from bolting to 60% seed color change, the recommended timing for, for swathing. Uh, when, the, when this increased, so did yield. You know, so do some hybrids spend more time in reproductive development uh, than others? And, and, you know, this is something that life science companies and canola breeders are probably selecting for already, but you know, I would encourage, I would encourage you to, to look at this on your farm and, and maybe you'll notice differences among your hybrids or, or management practices or whatever. When you look at, you know, the whole, the big picture of, of what happened uh, for us in the fields that we observed, this is kind of the timeline. So planting, emergence, flowering starts here or bolting, end of flowering, and then, you know, reproductive development. And, um, 
this is, yeah, so this is what it looks like over the growing season. Um, and it gives you a snapshot of, you know, look, this field, this field was planted later uh, and it matured later. Well, that makes sense. But this, this field here was planted, well, it wasn't the first one planted, but it wasn't the last. And it was actually the second last to mature. So, you know, when you start, when you start recording these things, you can, you can look back and look at the environmental conditions, maybe during that time or what have you. You know, and, and so you can do this too. Uh, this this actually this form is actually on our website at, at this link here at, at the bottom of the page. Scroll all the way down to the bottom, um, and I think it's a really good tool that you can use to evaluate genetics or management um, and genetics by management. Of course, there's a, there will be interactions between those two. Uh, things like hybrid selection, so maturity or early season vigor or growth rate, maybe the duration of flowering. Uh, what about a fertilizer experiment? Uh, you know, the starter pea and early season vigor are those plants popping up out of the ground you know record this data um i don't i don't i always cringe whenever i see early you know early season vigor data as a scale i want to see i want to see this when did these stages occur you know how big is the plant pull out the plant weigh it measure it don't give me a rating uh what about planting conditions do you go later do you go earlier that you can do that for this too you know and and, and so, like I said before, probably more questions in this presentation than answers. Uh, um, but, you know, I think uh, that's, that's one of the best parts about my job is I get to ask a lot of questions. That was Nate Ort. To find the phenology tracking sheet that Nate referenced near the end, please go to canolacouncil.org slash research and scroll to the bottom. Our next guest is Keith Fournier. Keith farms at Lone Rock, Saskatchewan, right near the Alberta border. He is also a director with SAS Canola. Keith explains the management part of the equation. Here's Keith. Paul and Nate had talked about, you know, the, the environment and, and, you know, a lot of how plants respond to the environment. And so, but for the most part, environment is, is, out of the control of, of our hands as farmers here. And, and so we, we have to deal with, with the, I guess, manage that environment um, just with what we've got to use on our own farms. And so, I mean, that varies vastly across Western Canada. I mean, you, you look at areas from like Swift Current, Lethbridge, up into the Peace River. And I mean, I'm from Saskatchewan. So, you know, I often think of Metal Lake down to, you know, south of Regina or, or into that swift current area, Manitoba, you've got like Russell down to Winkler. The, the, the rainfall amounts you get very vastly, your growing season very vastly. And so, so the management practices do vary a lot across Western Canada, but there's, there's a lot of other factors that come in. I mean, I, I'd mentioned the growing season, but there's also the, it might, what might be a right variety for you, whether it's not the right one for someone who's, you know, uh, a province or two over, but maybe it's not even the right variety for your neighbor that's two or three miles down the road because your management practices vary vastly too within our farm. They just, you know, think of equipment. I mean, some of us are, are set up for straight cut and, and maybe the, you know, the next person down the road isn't. We all have different combine capacities. Like I might have a combine that I think, okay, well, I'm, I'm using, I'll combine 1800 acres with that combine. 
I might have a neighbor that's thinking, you know, well, he can get 3,500 acres out of his combine. And so, so that's a whole different management. And when it comes to canola varieties, the, the choice in that will probably vary too with, with that management, with your equipment, with, with your capacity. I mean, you might even have a dryer on your farm when you talk to, to about equipment and a neighbor doesn't have. Um, herbicide systems like rotation quite often will dictate herbicide systems we've got. So I know up in our area, our options for rotation aren't nearly where they would be down in, say, southern Manitoba. And so lots of times they will want to use, like the, the Clearfield canolas are, are much more prevalent in Manitoba, especially the southern part, is because they, just because of rotation, they're having to fit the canola into rotation. Whereas up uh, in like northern Saskatchewan, a lot of Alberta, you know, the, the, um, the clear field maybe isn't as prevalent just because of, we don't have the, we don't have that option. Um, um, this year, uh, another one coming up is variety availability. I mean, usually you think that, that you've got a variety that, you know, you just go out and you, you pick your variety, but this year that it's another, uh, wrench that got thrown into the works was, you know, you might have your variety picked out, but maybe that wasn't available and we have to go down to the second or third one. And also we, we all have different variants of risk as, as farmers. So I was, I was, yesterday I went over the, um, got onto the internet and I was checking out the number of varieties that were available. And, you know, there might be more, but I come up with eight seed companies and that's if you, put Corteva and Bravant into, uh, I mean, Pioneer Seeds and Bravant in under Corteva, that we have eight seed companies and I counted up 86 different varieties. When I first started farming, there was a choice of you had, you had a Polish or an Argentine. So the Polish, okay, so we went and cleaned up, you know, some, some Tobin seed and the Argentine, well, you could go to a West Star. And so now, I mean, we've got 86 varieties and great that we've got some companies that are cranking out some really good genetics because of that wide variance that I had talked about, you know, environmental conditions and growing season. Uh, there's within the 86 varieties, I mean, there's four different herbicide systems that, that we can use to be able to match into our rotations and, and use for weed control, depending on the weeds we've got. So, I mean, we, we've got some wonderful options out there. But there is a lot of things that make that variety choice really difficult when, when you're looking at is, how, you know, how do you compare the apples to apples? And like each seed company, they compare yields to different checks. Uh, there, there could be different scale ratings for standability and pot integrity. And so, Sometimes, you know, that it's what might seem as a simple decision becomes a very difficult one. And the Canola Council is, uh, I believe, will be releasing a pot integrity rating. So companies will be rating a pot integrity. And hopefully that will be one thing that will be standardized for this coming year and take some of the confusion out of it. But for, for this year, for choosing a variety, yeah, there are the different um, standards and ratings for that pot integrity. So to, because of, 
uh, I guess, a lot of choices and, and maybe some confusion out there. In 2011, the, the three Prairie Canola Commissions started up, the, were encouraged to start up a performance, canola performance trials. And this was to be able to just give the farmers one more tool to be able to compare their yield, the maturity, the standability, all to the same check because uh, different companies are using different checks. And so again, that makes it hard to compare those apples to oranges. So the perform canola performance trials, I'm gonna call them CPTs for short here. They, it is one more tool that you could use to be able to, to build, go back and just verify that that variety you picked is uh, just to have that confidence that maybe it's the one you do want. So this year we had 31 varieties in, uh, in the CPTs across the three provinces and across the three zone, growing zones. And they were divided into street cut and swath. The, there's a protocol for Bill to put these in because we, we want any data that we get off of here. If farmers are gonna be able to use it, it has to be of a high quality and it has to be trusted by the farmers. But it doesn't only just have to be trusted by the farmers, it has to be trusted by the seed companies that, that are putting those varieties in. Because if we're not, with the CPDs, if it's not producing good data that can be trusted, they're not going to want to have their varieties involved within, within the trials, just because they, they're, it just might um, be misleading on the way out. So, so yeah, data being high quality and trusted is, is number one. So we do have a technical committee which designs the protocols. And within that, we draw expertise from the provincial oil seed specialists from each province. There is a farmer rep from each province that's on there. And the seed companies, pretty near every seed company has a representative that's on the technical committee so that they could feel confident that the protocols that, that are used on canola performance trials are going to show their varieties in a fair way. So the, the reason I wanted to cover on the 31 varieties this year. So the, the map that Paul had, had showed out and looked at the, you know, you can see there's wide areas of drought. And out of those, um, and out of the, the, well, the 31 varieties are still in there, but the, the, the number of sites that we have for the CPTs across the Prairie provinces, we lost about 50% of those. And so we're, so we're restricted some in the data that we're able to provide this year. But you know, that same holds true. I mean, the, the CPTs were restricting the data, but we're no different than any other seed company that's providing data for their varieties. They also had probably 50% loss in their plots too. Um, so, so that was just one factor that came, uh, that was right across Western Canada, maybe not so much Manitoba, but Saskatchewan, Alberta had some difficult conditions this year. So the CPT results are printed in the Western producer insert that comes out every fall. And also the, each province provides a provincial seed guide. So if you look in there under the, the canola seed varieties, and that information that you see there all comes out of the canola performance trial data that we've, that's generated. 
but there's also the ability to be able to um, go to the Canola Performance Trials website, and it's up on the screen there. The website is canolaperformancetrials.ca. And so this is what the this is what the website looks like, and so it's searchable that you can choose your at the bottom. You'll see where you could choose your province. You could choose your growing zone type you've got. You could choose your trial type. There's, um, so I had talked about the small plots, but there's also field scale trials. So BASF provides their data on all their field scale trials for their varieties um, that they do across Western Canada. So that will be, the, the trial type will be the field scale trials. But then for the small plot, there is, you can search for the street cut varieties, and you could also search for the swath varieties. And then at the bottom, you could choose your year that you want to search for. So let's say that you want to, you want to pick out um, a variety or you want to use two or three years. I, and I see on there 2021 isn't, wasn't available here the other day to be checked, but if it isn't there today, it should be there within the next uh, within the next week or so that you be able to, to view that. But you could you could choose the year you want to check, and for a year like 2021, it might be a great idea to go onto this site and check 2021 plus 2020 or 2019, and you could go over two or three years because maybe the data because we had some growing uh, we had some environmental conditions which just weren't natural. And so you can, you can choose over, say, two or three different years. You could choose over different growing zones if you want to see, you know, what, what would happen if, you, if you're in a different risk zone. And, and just query for the variety you think might be best chosen for your farm. So this maybe isn't what you want. You know, you, you could use this to choose your own variety. But lots of times you could just use it to, to go on and verify your decision just to see if, yeah, it was the right one, or maybe there's another option we could use. So yeah, just uh, that's the information that uh, another option we could use for growers to be able to do some variety checks to be able to, to, that would best suit our farm and our management. That was Keith Fournier. We'll close this podcast with a Q&A segment from the webinar. I start off with a question for Keith asking which features are the most important for him when choosing a hybrid for his farm. Uh, for, for the first thing I would look at would be choosing a herbicide system. If I, you know, because quite often, I mean, Clearfield, we, we've got pulses into our rotation. So, so for, for my farm, I, I find that the Clearfield doesn't really have a great fit because we want to be able to use that Clearfield um, herbicide system for controlling weeds and our pulses. So I would end up, you know, looking for a Liberty or Roundup system, number one. And I do rotate um, every couple of years, I'll rotate from one to the other. And so that, that would be the first one that I would look at. And then after that, I would match it up to my risk. Like for, for my area, I would say, gee, you know, I might be able to get a little bit more yield out of having a longer growing seed, you know, out of having a longer uh, maturity variety. But do I want to accept that risk on my farm? I mean, do I, 
we we've had like this past year yeah we we had a we with the extra heat units we were really great but we've had some years that were really pushed and we're out there waiting for the snow to melt so we could get back out and so i would i always take and and i like to make sure i'm not too high on the risk so i mean that's going to vary from from one farm in in one area of this um western canada to another that's what i use on my farm Okay, so Nate, I'm gonna I'm gonna build on that and go to you. The CPT trials that Keith talked about, we we know the days to maturity for each for each cultivar in, in the trials. But what you're saying is that almost well, not more important, but you know, is that period up until first flower. So if you've got a shorter period to first flower and longer flowering, you're more likely to yield more. So can we track, I don't think CPT does this yet, but is it, is it fairly easy for a farmer to find out information on days to first flower? Uh, for canola, not really, no. Uh, and, but so days to first flower, it can sometimes be related to maturity. So those earlier maturing hybrids might flower earlier. Um, th this is data that is probably collected in breeding trials by life science companies or, or you know, publicly funded breeding programs. They, they look at flowering timing, flowering duration, um, and maybe even, you know, within flowering, you know, once 20, 30, 40, et cetera. Uh, but, but for, but once, uh, you know, further down the road, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if this data is available. Okay, this is a good question for Paul. Um, and Nate, you can jump in, but we'll go to Paul first. Um, so Manasa asks, uh, what might have led to the better than expected yields in Manitoba, considering how dry and hot it was? Yeah, that is a, that is a tough question. I think that uh, what we've seen even the last few years, you know, we've gone through a more or less kind of a drier stretch for many areas, especially in Manitoba. But, you know, um, Manitoba does have some heavier soils and it does have some groundwater systems that I think in some cases uh, will, will uh, benefit the crops and, and perhaps more so than we're really accounting for in some of our yield and, and moisture model uh, type research. So that's the only thing I could really uh, pull out there because boy, you know, with that kind of heat and, and, and the, the, the sort of uh, impact it has on flowering and, and days in flower and that kind of thing, boy, there really wasn't a lot pretty very beneficial. So it's, it's a tough one to call. Possibly the moisture wasn't quite as bad as the lack of rainfall would indicate if there's another source, like a subsurface source of water in some areas. Nate, would you add to that? Anything to add? Uh, just that, you know, precipitation can be so spotty. And I think that, that we saw a lot of that in 2021. Um, for example, I live just south of Carmen, Manitoba, and, and the quarter that I live on was canola this year, and it, it went just low 40s. And, and so, you know, the farmers were happy with that. Uh, just, I think it was seven or eight miles east of my place, uh, there were fields there that were averaging below 10. Uh, so not that far away. You know, heat temperature was probably very similar, you know, in an eight mile, seven mile distance, but the, where I live, there's just a little bit more rain and rain makes grain. Any other notable observations between those two sites that, that sprung to mind for you? Uh, uniformity. Uh, that, that was also because of the rain and this rain, uh, this was the beginning of June, June 9th, I think. 
was when this event went through. So uh, yeah, it affected the duration. It affected the rest of the growing season. Yeah. Hey, hey Keith, how was your yield based on what you thought it might have been, you know, given the, the heat and the dry? Well, I mean, it varied from from one end of our farm to the other. We had uh, we had one part of our farm, like uh, up by Maidstone, that ended up getting eight tenths of rain one week, whereas down by Lone Rock at home, we had two tenths, and that was 10 bushels a acre difference. And so down at Lone Rock, we were we were sitting at about a half a crop and up at Maidstone, probably a 75% crop. So yeah, just to, if you got a little bit of rain right in that in that heat spot or just after that crop could recover, it made a huge difference. Okay, we're going to talk about emergence. You know, and Nate, you know this, and well, all three of you know this. Um, you know, data shows that seeding the beginning of May tends to yield more than the end of May. But over the past couple of years, we're starting to wonder if maybe waiting for the soils to emerge or warm up a little bit so we get faster emergence might be might be another factor. But there's so much that goes into early seeding. But here's the question from Orest. Um, why, uh, when when germination for, for top seed is well over 90%, um, why do we only get 60% emergence? So what what's going on and uh, how do we manage for, for better emergence. Nate, do you want to start with this? Uh, sure. I, I don't think I have an answer. It's a really, really good question. It's like a million dollar question. There's so many different things that drive the rate of emergence, you know, soil temperature, soil moisture, the residue, the preceding crop, whatever was grown there last year, row spacing, the spacing between seeds, plant densities, you know, um, your openers, is it planted? Is it seeded? Is it broadcast? It's a broadcast by a plane, like there's so much, right? And and I would encourage, you know, so I don't have an answer and it's gonna be different for every farm across the prairies. Um, and, you know, the one the way to move forward is to start counting plants in the spring and, you know, tr maybe try out a couple different things, uh, you know, use, use a hoop. We have a good tool. Uh, the Canola Council has a good uh, uh, Canola Counts tool that's that can be found on our website. Um, and, and, you know, we, we came up with a map a, a prairie-wide map uh, this fall uh, showing, you know, the percent emergence across the prairies. And, and you know, we want to do this moving forward as well. So I think it starts, you know, with really good, diligent record keeping. Um, and, and then you evaluate your management practices or, or whatever it was that you've kind of changed or altered or tweaked, optimized, hopefully, um, with the results. And then we move forward. Okay, Paul, I've got a question for you. And I'm so glad this question came in because we've got a a weather specialist here and so we just have to take a couple minutes to talk about what's going to happen in 2022 mm. so do you have um do you have any idea what the weather probabilities are uh, heading into 2022 no not really um you know and i've i'm long enough in the tooth uh, trying to deal with this to, to know better um that that uh you know, you can try and take a stab at it. There's some things that we, we can know, like uh, Les Henry's soil moisture map. That's hundred percent. You know that there's no question about mm -hmm. it, but uh, you know, honestly, we could, if you're somewhere in Western Saskatchewan, you say, wow, it's really dry, you know, well, that can change. That can literally change in a day. And, and so what do I know? For sure, not 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 anything for sure, but what seems to be happening, and and there is 
physical reasons why it may be in our weather system is, is the variability. And, and the, the fact that we're, we're seeing a, a lazier jet stream with very deep uh, uh, wavy patterns that are persistent. So if it gets dry over a, a region on a synoptic scale, it's likely to sit there for a while, which is not good. And the flip side is that if you happen to be on the other side of that, of that jet position and you're, you're getting wet, you're, you're probably gonna continue to get wet. And, and, and then when it shifts around, it goes to the other extreme. So the Western Canada sits right in the path of the, the mid-latitude westerly uh, airflow on the planet. And that airflow is becoming more lazy and meandering and it's causing more variability. And, and so, you know, that it's hard enough to predict at the best of times, but I, I think it's going to become even more variable and more unpredictable. That's my prognostication. To wrap up the webinar, I asked Nate, Keith, and Paul for one last key message. Perhaps we'll go in order of presentation. So Paul, right back to you. Um, what would be your your closing um, soundbite? Well, I mean, I, I think there's been a lot of things acknowledged here that 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 we we know um, you you can't control weather. You have control over what you select, and what Nate said, I think, really brings it home. Um, where you put your boots on the ground, what works for you there is not necessarily going to be the same as your neighbor just a few miles away. And becoming more cognizant of those risks, trying things and, and doing things on farm, I think needs to become more um, prevalent in what, what we do to try to make use of this information to make our decisions more uh, distributed for the location and, and better informed. That's the best that we can do. Thanks, Paul. Nate? Yeah, just, you know, record keeping, I think is just, it's so important. Um, and, and we think that we can remember everything. Like how often have you said, oh yeah, I'll remember that, you know, for like, <laughs> I, like, no, you, we never do. Right. So yeah, just write it down. Right. Like I, I gave up trying to remember things for later. Um, I have a notepad on my bedside table, you know, like I just I write everything down. Um, and, and then going back and evaluating these records and these take time, this takes time. You know, I, I, it's a lot of work to, to go back and to, to sift through it all and to try to find out maybe where there's room for improvement. Um, and, and I can empathize with that. Keith, last word to you. I would say to, to do what's right for your farm and, and what's, what's right for your farm isn't the, the what's right for the neighbors farming. We all have that different risk tolerance. We have that different equipment I talked about before. So, so find out, find what works for your farm under, under, you know, your, your situation and your management conditions that you are in your risk tolerance and, and just go with that. Thank you, Keith, Nate, and Paul. Also, thank you to the host organizations of this webinar series, SAS Canola, Alberta Canola, Manitoba Canola Growers, and the Canola Council of Canada. You can watch all segments of this webinar, including the slides, at youtube.com slash canola council. If this topic interests you, you might also like to read the Canola Digest article, How to Improve Yield with genetics. Find it at canoladigest.ca. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. Thanks for listening.